Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. I hope you've been enjoying this week's teaching on Matthew chapter 3 as much as I have. Today, Dr. Neufeld will be teaching on Matthew 3, 11 and 12, the work of the great king. So let's open our Bibles and get started, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. I think one of the most difficult parts to play in an orchestra is second violin. The role in which a violinist sits in an orchestra actually determines both their skill level and their importance in the orchestra. It's hard to sit in the second or even the third row. But let me tell you what's far more difficult than sitting in the third row. It's sitting in the second row when you used to be the first violinist. That's murderously hard on the ego. It's hard to be a backup quarterback, but it's harder to be the backup quarterback when you used to have the starring role. It's hard to be a supporting actress when your job is to make the star look good and you remember the days when they crowded into the theaters to see you. It's hard to be a preacher when your church is getting smaller and the church down the road is getting bigger. Playing that kind of role will give your self-esteem a profound thumping. Very few people can take that kind of pressure well. At one point in his ministry, the crowds that first came to hear John the Baptist preach started to wane. Jesus had begun his ministry, and all the crowds who once were packing out John's venue were moving on. It was a lot smaller than it used to be. I remember attending a church some years ago that had a very large auditorium. It reminded the congregation every Sunday of the good old days. But nowadays, they hardly were filled even to half. It's hard to keep going because everyone has this feeling of being just a bit dispirited. Have you ever wondered what it must have felt like for John the Baptist near the end of his ministry? John may have preached with great fervor in his heyday, but when Jesus started his ministry, he was preaching in a way that John never could. And Jesus was doing miracles to boot. John never did any of that. So the crowds were moving on. He was yesterday's man, and Jesus was the new guy on the block. One of John's disciples came to him to complain about the situation they found themselves in, and John answered that he was not the bridegroom. He was a friend of the bridegroom, or what we might call the best man. I was never the star of the show, he says, and then speaking of Jesus, he said, he must increase, but I must decrease. You're still wondering what John felt like? Well, don't feel too sorry for him. Long before the crowd started to diminish, when John was still in his prime, when all Jerusalem and Judea was emptied out and the people made pilgrimage to hear him preach, John was already preaching to the crowds in his day about what he saw coming ahead. Let's read Matthew 3, 11 to 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Please understand that the lesson here is not that we should have the same kind of humility that John had. Yes, humility is good, but that's not this lesson here. Rather, the message is that John had always had but one sermon. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He thundered. The king is about ready to ride onto the stage of human history. My role is to be shouting it out. Be ready for the great king. We all stand on the threshold of the greatest moment of human history. And when that day comes, I'll be getting out of the way. That's why John's ego, I think, never took a beating. Think of our second violinist, who used to be the first violinist. 
What if this musician was given the role of warming up the orchestra so that it was ready for the greatest musician in human history to walk through the door, take their seat, and play? Do you think that violinist ego would take a beating? Hardly. They would be given the privilege of paving the way for the greatest show on earth. And that's what John thought. Far from being humiliated, this was his greatest honor. John believed that when the king came, the king would be so great and glorious that he couldn't even imagine being counted worthy to carry his shoes. I can imagine in the heyday of John's ministry, the crowds who had come to repent of their sins hearing this message, their eyes were brimming with excitement and anticipation. The only reason they went to hear John was not because he was such a great preacher. They went to get ready for the greatest moment in human history. And so for our benefit, I want to paint a picture of Jesus who is simply greater than we have ever had the ability to imagine. For instance, Muslims claim to respect and revere Jesus. The Quran affirms the virgin birth, claims Jesus was miraculously created even as Adam was, affirms that Jesus performed miracles, and even says that he was one of the greatest messengers of God to mankind, but, they say, lesser than Muhammad. But John would have said, look, no one, no matter how great, is worthy to even stoop down and carry this man's shoes. So you claim to honor Jesus. You have no idea how great he actually is. You know, recently the Dalai Lama, an important figure in Buddhist thinking, suggested that Jesus was a model of a spiritually mature, good, and warm-hearted person, and that his mission was to show his followers how they could be good-hearted as well. That's kind of nice. But as a Buddhist, the Dalai Lama himself is indifferent to God's existence. Honoring God is not an important issue. He teaches. So being good-hearted is of greater value than worship. You'll remember that this good-hearted Jesus believed that the greatest of all the commands was to love God with all our hearts. That command, he taught, superseded every other commandment. Apparently, Jesus never mentioned the good-hearted stuff at all. I think as British scholar C.S. Lewis himself said, we do well if we would all just stop making silly statements about Jesus. John the Baptist would have agreed. You know, Baha'i teaches that Jesus is only one manifestation of God among many. Hindus typically believe that Jesus realized his own universal God consciousness and confirmed the ideal in any other person that we should learn to do the same. But John the Baptist said of Jesus, I'm not worthy of walking after him and carrying his sandals. And I'm quite sure that the way he says it, he means that no one is worthy to carry his sandals. Not Aristotle, not Alexander the Great, not Julius Caesar, not Winston Churchill, not any of the great religious leaders I have mentioned. Any one of them could have legitimately claimed an honor as great as to be allowed to trail behind him and carry his shoes. And then John tells us why. He has been baptizing people in water, an outward sign of an inner desire to repent of all known sins. He could call people to get right with God, and this he is doing exceedingly well. But the king, the one who is about to step onto the stage, will do something no human being has ever done before or done since. He would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, just what can that mean? Exactly what is this thing that Jesus and only Jesus could do? 
And the problem with so many of us when we read a passage like this is that we immediately jump ahead to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. And we notice that on that day, tongues of fire were coming upon each believer. And therefore, we assume that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire that John mentions must refer to that phenomenon just down the road. But we do well to understand John in his own terms. Let him speak for himself before we put words into his mouth. Look again at what he says. He mentions, as we can see, two baptisms, the Holy Spirit and fire. And then if you don't know what he's talking about, he explains it. He says that the winnowing fork is in his hand. The one that's coming after him will have this fork. In our day, we don't have winnowing forks. We have huge combines that travel all over a large wheat field at harvest time, and those things do what ancient winnowing forks used to do. But at the time of Jesus, harvesters would go through the wheat field at harvest time with a scythe and cut down the harvest, and then they would take the wheat into something called a threshing floor. The harvest then would consist of a two-step process. The first process was called threshing, in which you would beat the wheat with threshing sledges and dislodge the grain from the wheat stalks. Then usually in a windy place, often in the top of the hill, you had winnowing forks, which were, in fact, large forks with long handles, and you would throw the grain into the air numerous times, and the chaff and the husks would separate from the grain the lighter chaff blown away by the wind. John was saying that the one coming after him would treat the human race the way an ancient harvester treated the harvest. The great king is coming and he will separate the human race chaff from grain. The baptism of the Holy Spirit had everything to do with gathering the wheat into the barn and the baptism of fire had everything to do with sweeping up the chaff and husks and burning them. It was the announcement of judgment. Because this is what the king was coming to do, John was warning people that now is the time to get right with God. John was also saying that no other human being has this kind of authority. No president, no king, no prophet. Only this one had the authority to separate out the entire human race. See, when we come back, we're going to try to understand the ministry of Jesus and why it is according to Psalm 2, that tells kings of the earth and rulers of the earth to be warned because of this one. Don't trifle with him, says John. Take him very seriously. He will do what no one else has done. The way that John the Baptist lived his life is admirable. John was a man who wanted to give Jesus all the glory. This is the attitude that we should have no matter what row or line we find ourselves standing at in life. John the Baptist is telling us that Judgment Day is approaching and that we need to make sure things are right between us and God. We'll talk more about that right after the break. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. 
please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today. Once we understand that John the Baptist was announcing the great day of judgment, which the human race would be separated as an ancient harvester separates out the wheat from the chaff, we begin to see the picture he was painting about the one coming after him, quite frankly, the mightiest man in the history of humanity. Repent, he says, the great kingdom of heaven is at hand. We might ask ourselves, what is now the obvious question? If this is what John the Baptist was expecting, then was he wrong? Because nothing of the kind actually happened. So if you go ahead to Matthew 11, you'll find out that John had his own moments of confusion. In Matthew 11, John has been put into prison, and there his disciples were telling him about the exploits of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone in all Israel was talking about the amazing things he was doing. And so John sends some of his disciples who are charged with bringing a question to Jesus. The question is simple. Are you the one who is to come, or are you really that one, or should we be waiting and expecting another? And Jesus sends a message back to John by the way of John's disciples. Jesus tells John's disciples to hang around a while, watch him. Blind people are miraculously gaining their sight, and lepers, those who had one of the most feared diseases then known, a disease that had no cure, which meant a tragic, horrible death, were instantly healed. So great were the miracles of Jesus that in a few instances, even the dead were raised to life. And if this isn't the great end times outpouring of the Holy Spirit, then what is it? Go, Jesus tells John's disciples, and tell him about these things, and tell him about the good news I'm preaching. But just before they went, Jesus added one more instruction to John's disciples. When you get back to John in prison... When you go back to John as he awaits his execution at the hands of evil men, when you go back to John whose life has become harsh, make sure you tell him one more thing. Tell him, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, why would Jesus and what he is doing offend John? Well, the answer should be obvious. It is true that all the marks of the great end-time outpouring of the Holy Spirit were being evidenced in Jesus. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel in the Old Testament foresaw such a day as was now being evidenced in Jesus' ministry. This was the end-times outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These were the last days. But where was the baptism of fire? Where was the burning up of the unrighteous? Why was John still sitting in prison? Why was Herod Antipas allowed to carry on his evil, never mind the Roman Empire, who continued to dominate Israel and oppress her people? How can this be the great king when he's not doing the second half of the equation? And that leads us to two really important questions, and they are relevant today. The first is this. Was John right? So many people have predicted the end of the earth, and it never seems to happen. There are preachers today who are always announcing that the second coming of Jesus is just around the door, and then he never seems to show up. You know, my favorite of those comes years ago. It's, it's quite a number of years ago, but I remember there was a pamphlet that had been published, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 88, that is 1988. It predicted the second coming of Christ in September of 1988, and Canada Post being what it is, I got my pamphlet announcing the end in October of 1988. Oh, well. But never mind the date setting. 
Are we wrong in hoping for the end of the age? That's the first question. And here's the second question. Is Jesus really the great king who has been given authority to judge the human race? Perhaps all the other people who saw Jesus as only one of the great teachers or prophets or one of the great examples and encourager of others, maybe they're right. Is that all that Jesus is? How do we answer that? You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 31 to 32. Let me read it. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now that image, sheep from goats, is the same image of wheat from chaff or baptism of spirit and baptism of fire. Jesus affirmed the teaching of John the Baptist. He's going to do the very thing that John the Baptist promised would happen. But we might still have three more questions. Didn't John the Baptist believe that the two things, the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire, would happen at the same time? Well, yes, sort of. I want you to imagine that you're looking through a telescope at two mountain ranges in the distance. You describe them both accurately, but as you walk up to them, you find that the two of them are actually separated out by a valley, something you could not have seen through the telescope. From a distance, the two ranges are compacted. Were you right in describing them? Yes, you were. But there was something you did not foresee, and that's exactly what happened to John. He truly and accurately described two events, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire, but he did not describe the time gap between them. But that leads to a second question. How do we know that the second event, the great day of judgment is going to happen. And this is where Jesus comes in. Just watch me, he says. The blind see, and even the dead are raised. And then to prove that the great day of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is upon us, he even demonstrates his mastery over all things. He tames nature. He ultimately rises from the dead. Do you still doubt that he has the authority to bring about the day of judgment? And that leads to the third question. Why are things this way? If Jesus has authority over heaven and earth and can bring the wicked to judgment at the snap of his fingers, why isn't he doing it? Why this time gap as we await his demonstration of justice? And the answer is rather profound because the rest of our New Testament is written to answer that important question. Jesus is right now building a church or raising up a people for himself. He has, out of his mercy, delayed the day of wrath so that he might extend the hour of mercy. He is pouring out his Holy Spirit in a most unusual time and allowing a great blessing from God to flow out to the whole world so that we might have time to respond and come to him. And in the meantime, we are living in this unique overlap of the ages. The new era of end times blessing of the Holy Spirit has arrived, but the old era of sin and death and unrighteousness is allowed to remain. The kingdom of heaven has been poured out, but the kingdom of darkness is still allowed to rage for the moment. You know, there's an African water spider that hunts while walking across the water. But when the time comes for the female to lay her eggs, she does an interesting backflip on the top of the water and creates a little bubble of air under her abdomen. And she then swims under the water and finds a branch or some other obstacle under the water where she releases that little bubble of air. Then she swims to the surface and repeats that behavior all day long until that tiny little bubble becomes quite large, becomes a large underwater cave of air. 
There she will lay her eggs, and there they will be safe, and there they will be hatched. And so here's what happens. The environment from above has invaded the environment from below. That's exactly what happened in the ministry of Jesus. The great blessings of heaven, which included the receiving of a new heart, the delight in the things of God, the gathering together of one people, all of this has already begun right now. This new activity signals that the old age of sin and death is coming to an end and will soon be no more. And in the meantime, we live in this amazing time when both ages overlap. And that's the work of the great king. He brings the new while the old remains. And because he brings the new, the old cannot continue to remain. Indeed, this age of sin and death is coming to an end. And that's why no one is worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. And what should we do? Well, we should repent. We should turn from our sins. We should believe him. We should remember that we are living in a most remarkable time. We are living in a time when the great end times has already begun even now. We are living in unusual days when the Holy Spirit has already been poured out. But we are also living in the day when the evil remains. But we are living in the day in which we have all the signs necessary to show us that this evil age cannot continue. Its days are surely coming to an end. Christ will return. John, what a great teaching and what a great encouragement. You know, we've talked about the crossover of the new coming and the old remaining. Do you think that has any implications or application for how we live our lives today? I surely do. I think that the language of the new and the old is found all the way throughout the New Testament, and it describes not just what's happening globally, but it describes also my individual life. I know that the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, or she is a new creation. The new has come and the old has passed away. So I know that everything is made new. And yet, why is it that at the same time, I still find myself struggling with my sin nature? And so I think what we find is that the new has come, but the old remains. But the hopeful thing about that is that when the new has come, it is a sign that the old cannot remain. So if you're struggling with sin, but you've placed your hope in Christ and you sense that you're a new creation in Christ, take hope because that struggle with sin can't remain. Sin will be put to death. Christ will return. And that's where our hope lies, is knowing that we're never going to be the same. Once we've received Christ into our lives, a transformation begins, and uh, we're going to be able to experience that transformation and one day be with him for eternity. So, John, and now that we've discussed this, where are we headed tomorrow? Well, we're going to look tomorrow at the baptism of Jesus and see him standing in the sinner's line, watching him being baptized and hearing the voice of the Father saying about Jesus that he is his beloved son. And part of the doctrine of the Trinity comes from exactly that verse. So that's the exciting portion that we're going to look at tomorrow. What an exciting picture to see Jesus standing there being baptized. Thanks, John, and thank you to all who are listening today. And join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. The regular gifts of our partner to tell monthly partners have become the very backbone to sustain the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada. Programs that reach out to every demographic using every possible medium, teaching the truth of God's Word that speaks into every area and question of life. Partner to Tell monthly partners are critical to the ongoing ministry of Back to the Bible Canada's daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld. They support the ongoing ministry to young adults through In Doubt. 
They provide messages of hope and joy shared daily that point to Jesus through Laugh Again. And now your gifts will become increasingly important as Truth and Life Today reaches potentially millions of households offering biblical truth that engages culture. Thank you for all you do. And if you're interested in joining the ranks of Partner to Tell Partners, do so today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.